You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded live in Michigan. To learn more about Kensington, visit kensingtonchurch.org. Good morning, Kensington. Hope you guys are doing all right. Welcome. So glad you're here. Those of you online, thanks for joining us. If you guys are able to, would you stand up with us just for this first song?
can have a seat. In Luke 11, one of the things that Jesus teaches is the reality that there is no space on planet Earth that is unclaimed spiritual territory. Our call is to fight for every inch of planet Earth to be claimed for Jesus Christ. we believe that we are called to show the love of God by meeting the needs in His name around the world. That's why we're investing resources and building long-term relationships with global partners in 10 different countries. These indigenous global partners understand their communities and their unique needs around them. They are passionate about bringing Jesus to their people, and we get to come alongside them to support the incredible work that they are doing. In Brazil, Kensington partners with CTPI. This church planning movement led by Ricardo Agreste is making a lasting impact in Brazil by starting new Christ-centered churches, training leaders, and supporting planters in residence. CTPI has had some church plants recently become self-sufficient, while others have focused on meeting the greatest needs in their communities due to the pandemic. Whether that's food and water deliveries, essential services, or virtual Bible studies. Ricardo and his team are the best first world missional movement I know of anywhere for making disciples who make disciples. But they're also in a more adverse environment. It has not discouraged them from supporting current future church leaders, starting a new movement of God, starting it all over Brazil. In the Dominican Republic, Kensington partners with Go Ministries as they transform whole communities through youth programs, church planning, medical care, and community development. They are involved in communities, which includes 38 neighborhood churches and 41 prison churches. They had this modest goal of just getting prison ministry started, and all of a sudden we've got 41 prison churches. So the inmates themselves are becoming the apostles and the church planters. They're the people that are doing these incredible baptisms. I mean, how can you not be moved by this? For several years, Kensington has discreetly partnered with an organization and a small network of brave individuals to bring the good news of Jesus to the people of Afghanistan. Our partner's focus has been on church planning, resourcing believers, and Bible distribution. When the Taliban established control several months ago, the people of Kensington gave with open-handedness, supporting the evacuation of more than 5,000 people in this period of extreme violence and danger. Our partner's leaders hope to step up evacuation efforts as they see the window of opportunity closing rapidly. They recently got access to raised funds, allowing them to provide much-needed food and medical care. Evangelism and discipleship are exploding in this restricted country. We have a thousand students that have entered seminary training. These leaders are starting to move into restricted countries, into other places of the world. Our partner's house-based movement continues to spread, bringing fellowship, discipleship, and Bible study to thousands of people. During the pandemic, 1,005 house churches were started. In India, our partner Jaya and his organization, Christ Evangelical Mission, or CEM, meets all kinds of needs among the poorest in India, from elder and orphan care to community development and skill training for women. 
During the second wave of COVID, with hospitals beyond capacity, CEM's private hospital was converted into a life-saving COVID treatment center at the request of the Indian government. The required upgrades and equipment were provided by you, the people of Kensington. Over $200,000 was raised and the hospital was made ready to serve their community. I don't know why, but I'm always surprised of God moving in unexpected places, but we did not expect COVID to open this gigantic door with the Indian government for the CEM ministry to expand their hospital to a full service connection of serving the poor and seeing God expand that ministry in a way we had not been able to do in the past. In Nepal, our partner, Ramesh Sapkota, has been rescuing and restoring girls from human trafficking for nearly 30 years. His organization, Our Daughters International, and their partners are committed to bringing rescued victims through the healing process and helping them to become leaders and business owners in their respective villages. We had a small safe house that's capacity of 20 girls at a time, and we were desperately needing another safe home. We were praying, God, God, give us the safe home. And that's where the Kensington whole community stood with us. And we are ever thankful they provided us our resources to build the second safe home. Second safe home gonna accommodate about 40 girls at a time. And I would like to say on you, through you, through the, um, to the Kensington community, thank you so much for your investments. In Kenya and South Sudan, Kensington has a longtime partner with Julius Morgor and his successor, Ruben Miracle. Their organization is meeting physical and spiritual needs among the Pokot tribe in Kenya and three tribes in South Sudan. Julius and I started dreaming about reaching the Pokot Nation in 1985, but in 2003, we made a commitment to each other, every Pokot person coming to Christ, that there be a church and clean water in every village, that every Pokot kid could have access to education. I mean, this is a, a, a holistic vision. The greatest thing that is happening in Kenya is uh, the Clean Water Initiative that is reaching and transforming so many lives. It continues to give opportunity for sharing the, the goodness of Jesus Christ. Over the past 20 years, Julius and his team have raised up hundreds of fantastic leaders. But there was something unique about Reuben, as he was a very young man starting churches in Kenya and Uganda, over a dozen, and then he and Lois answering the call of planting 50 or 60 or more churches now in South Sudan. We've realized that Reuben was to be the next leader of the Pokot Outreach Ministries movement, and it is exciting to have him in place for the next 20, 30, or 40 years. Church is growing, and that shows really our lives are being transformed. We did a baptism recently of 104 people. And we did it in a pool that uh, previously it had a crocodile in it. But <laughs> it used to have a crocodile, so... <laughs> All this that we are doing, uh, the greatest support comes from Kensington. And uh, even the seeds that we distributed to the farmers last year, Many families receive the seats, uh, 1,400 families. Uh, but uh, above that, I was telling them uh, it was an opportunity. We leverage all this to point to Jesus and the, the love of Jesus. What you have just seen absolutely overflows my heart with joy. Years ago as a boy, I dreamed of 
serving under great leaders from around the world, men and women who are following Christ in their difficult places. And we are living that dream. These people have taught us what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And I feel such an overwhelming gratitude to God for allowing us to be a part of that. But there's a second part of this, and it's an overwhelming gratitude to you. I mean, your love and your partnership, your financial sacrifice in supporting these movements of God in the world over the last decades absolutely floors me, your willingness to step in. And this is why we do what we do. This is why when we come to year end, you're considering all the opportunities you have to give and invest. We say, this is an investment that is infinitely worth our lives. And so many of you have gotten to meet some of these people and some, so many of you have gotten to go. But we know that we are living a dream that very few people will ever get to experience as we experience Jesus Christ across the whole world. Well, good morning, everyone. Grateful to be with you. My name is Danny. If we haven't met before, so glad that you can make it here in this room. And then, of course, everyone on stream. Love to say hi to everyone on stream on the count of three. One, two, three. Hey. Some of you are like, hey, whatever. We love you. We're grateful that you are tuning in. So uh, I really am humbled every time we get to this part of the year to be able to look back and to see what God is doing in our midst, even over the last 12 months. But 20 years ago, never would I have thought we'd go from one global partner to 11 in 10 different countries, that we could actually have an impact not only on this region right here, not only on the United States, but certainly around the world, and to be able to really come underneath these great leaders. I've been to Nepal three times, been to Palestine and Israel, been to Brazil, been to a few of these places, and it's so incredible, the powerful leadership and the commitment to Jesus to see Jesus and the power of Jesus transform the world. And so we sang that first song, God so loves the world that he goes to every end of it and he calls all kinds of people to do that. So it is a privilege and just like Steve, I'm so moved by the generosity in this community to really uh, support that and push into that. It's been crazy. So thank you so much. I know this time of the year, your inbox starts to get filled with people that are asking you to be part of a year-end gift. But we really are asking you to contemplate that, to pray about that, to ask in your home, should we be part of this? And we believe that it's worth investing, uh, that we get to change the world through the power of Jesus and our generosity. So thank you for considering that. Well, we're in this season, of course, holiday season. We're moving into Thanksgiving really soon, actually, and then into Christmas. And because of that, we have some uh, amazing opportunities. Just in these six days that are leading up to this coming Saturday, we're gonna do Thanksgiving baskets. I told you last week, and we've been telling you every week, it's so one of the great things we get to do in this community. It's a long tradition here. We actually get to be the real tangible hands and feet. We get to go out and supply to our community and fill a need uh, that people are in in this time, that they may not have the resources for a number of different reasons to celebrate Thanksgiving. We get to actually be part of that. And I wanna tell us a great celebration. This campus alone has already given $20,000 for this. That's incredible. And so I just wanna thank you for that. Thank you again. I go every week. I'm like, this is the most generous community, but it's not just with your money, but your time and your talent and your energy. We need people to drive, to uh, actually deliver, to put baskets together, and we still need some more finances. So please consider that and take part in that. And that's where you can go to find more information or just ask any of us out there. Also, that's on Saturday. This coming week on Sunday, we do baptisms. 
And I would, include, I would just encourage you, if this is your time, don't worry. Our pool does not have crocodiles. You know, it's one of my favorite things that Ruben said. I hadn't seen that video, the full video, and I cracked up in that first service. I know Ruben pretty well, and he's hilarious. But we don't have crocodiles, but we are going to see lives transformed. And if that's your moment, if this is your time, don't let it pass by. Be part of it. You can sign up online right here. You can ask anyone out in the lobby. We'd love you to be part of that. One more quick thing for our families and our kids. Uh, we're going to be doing an Advent kit as we lead up to Christmas. Advent's a season where you prepare yourself for the coming of Christ, and that's going to come just in a few weeks. And so we're doing these kits and these projects together. Please ask anyone out in the lobby anything for that to get those kits and to start putting those together. It'd be a great project for your family. Well, we are going to step into this second week called Broken and Beautiful. Uh, before we do that, I'm going to invite you to stand up. And now listen, I know we're still in COVID, so let's be really respectful, but just stand up and give someone a virtual fist pump, a peace sign, a, a connect with your eyes, anything just to meet each other. And then we're going to move into our day. Some things appear to be broken and worthless, ready to be discarded and forgotten. But in the hands of a skilled artist, something beautiful happens. Jesus embraces the brokenness of humanity. He brings the restoration of our hearts and the mending of our souls into something with unimaginable worth. Well, we are excited about this series called Broken and Beautiful. It's actually written by our lead pastor out in our Birmingham campus, Justin Warren. He does a great job for this three-week series, and we're in our second week. Now, last week, we talked about how we are called by God to be co-creators with God to actually co-create with the creator of the universe. And if you walked in last week, you knew that you got a paintbrush. I hope you kept that paintbrush with you if you were here last week. And we had you hold it up and say, I am an artist. Say it again, I am a You're an artist. You're called to co-create that everything you do, even if you're making breakfast for your kids or your friends or whatever, you're in the midst of creating something that can actually be rooted in the power of God and the love of God. And so you're creating with God. And uh, not only are you an artist, but you are a masterpiece. And that was the other thing we said, you're a work of art. Now, many of you don't feel like you're a work of art, but you are. And so we talked about that last week, but this week, we're gonna press a little deeper into what that video just kind of hinted towards. What does it mean to be a co-creator and an artist and a person that walks through this world when we have brokenness? When we have things about our life that are painful, the brokenness of life, the pain of life, what does that actually mean? And so we're going to look at the power of God and what God does with the broken parts of our life. Because God is ultimately the master restorer. What's interesting is we live in a time right now that we have this disposable society. I don't know if you've recognized, it's even different than I was a child, but now we have this, this disposable society. Something breaks and we tend to throw it away, go on Amazon, and in, in a 24 hours it's on our porch, a new one. 
You know, we tend to, even companies are manufacturing things that don't last as long. You know, when I was growing up, I think we had a refrigerator that was 105 years old. You know, it lasted forever. And now I think refrigerators last, what, about five years? And then it's disposable, I, this idea. But, you know, it's funny with my parents. They have the same cookware that they bought when they got married. They have the same stuff now. They've been married over 50 years. And every time they pulled out, I crack up. And I see my dad, I go, Dad, you, it looks brand new. And I'm like, how do you do that? He goes, well, I went on Amazon and bought some more handles. I'm thinking of my dad going on Amazon. I'm like, what? You know, but here he is. He's polishing them. He's like, they look brand new. My mom has a hairbrush she's had since I was a little kid. I'm like, well, you can buy a new hairbrush. No, this one's special. And it looks almost brand new. But there's something magical about that mentality. There's something beautiful about the idea of restoration, of creating something, of keeping something moving, of restoring something. My wife is here today and she works at a museum. She works at the Henry Ford in Dearborn. And she has crazy stories of restoration. She works with some of the great curators around the country. She knows people around the country that do this kind of work. And they're restoring these beautiful artifacts. And it's a crazy, beautiful story of restoration. But one of my favorite stories is the Rosa Parks bus. I don't know if you know this, but the Rosa Parks bus was the one that she sat on in December 1st, 1955, Montgomery, Alabama. And she sat there and wouldn't give up her seat to the white gentleman. And it started a whole movement of the, the modern day civil rights movement. But what's interesting about that bus is in the early 70s, it went out of commission and a family bought it. Now they didn't know if it was actually the Rosa Parks bus, but they heard it might be and they bought it and they ended up parking it out into a field. And there it stood for years on end. They would use it for storage. They would put wood in it. They would put tools in it. In fact, this is what it looked like sitting out in the field. This is what the inside looked like. And so you could tell that there's broken windows and all kinds of things in this bus. It was pretty torn apart. When the person passed away, some of their family decided that they were gonna authenticate this and see if they could auction it off. And they felt like they had enough authentication so that they could actually do this. So they, they hired an auction house and they started to auction. And the Smithsonian... And the Henry Ford and few others started to, to look into this and say, is this really the bus? So it wasn't the bus, it's not gonna be it. But if this is the bus, we're gonna do this. Well, they felt like they could authenticate it and they started bidding. And guess what? The Henry Ford, Detroit, beat out Smithsonian. Hello. So, uh, but they won. I think it was nearly a half million dollars, wasn't it? I mean, it was a, it was a lot of money. And so they, they won the bus, they brought it and they restored it. This is what the bus actually looks like now on the floor of the Henry Ford. Now, here's the fascinating thing that I didn't know that my wife told me this week. She said, if someone would have taken that bus in the 1960s and 70s and put it in a controlled environment and just kept it in its form, when they would have gotten it as curators, they would have probably made it into a museum piece, which means they would have a guard all around it and you couldn't touch it and you couldn't go inside, which they have many of those things at the Henry Ford. But because it had so much broken things, because it needed so much restoration, it almost became a new creation. And it almost became even more powerful, actually. Because I don't know if you've done it yet, but you can go down and you can now get on that bus and you can sit on the seat and you can listen to Rosa Parks' voice and you can take in the experience. And it's one of the most moving things that I've ever done. And now we have people coming through it and experiencing not only the past, but the present and a vision for the future. Sometimes restoration takes things and makes them even better. Now, I'll tell you something. Some of you might've come in today and you've arrived here feeling a little bit like that bus in a field. Meaning that there's parts of your life that you feel isolated in, you feel lonely, 
You feel like parts of your heart and mind and soul may be broken or not as useful as they used to be or before. Maybe in some state of disrepair, because we're always in some state of disrepair or some state of repair in our lives. All of us come into this room today, whether you're on stream watching or here, bringing some sense of pain or brokenness to this moment. In his past uh, service, Steve Norman was here, and uh, Steve used to be a pastor here. He's a friend and a mentor of mine. And for years, he would say to me, Danny, he would tell the teachers this too, Danny, never underestimate the pain in the room when you stand on that stage. When you look out in the community, never underestimate the pain that's in that room. And a couple years later, someone came alongside that, and they said, never underestimate the pain in the room, but never underestimate the power of God. I mean, you never underestimate the power that God can step into your pain and your brokenness and my broken things and the things that I think actually hold me back, my flaws and all the things that I think are not right. And God can enter into that and do something powerful. God can actually take our, our pain and our struggles and bring something new out of it in our circumstances. Use our woundedness. This past week, I read a poem that I love. Uh, it's, a, it's from a, a poet that I, I really have a lot of admiration for. His name is Jalaluddin Rumi. He's a Persian mystic poet. And he talks many times about the relationship between people and God. And this particular poem is speaking, the person is speaking to God. It's like a prayer. And it's, it goes like this. It says, the person says, what about my eyes, God? And God says, keep them on the road. He says, what about my passion? And God says, keep it burning. Then the person says to God, well, what about my heart? And God looks at that person and says, tell me what you hold inside of your heart. And the person says, I hold pain and I hold sorrow. And God says to him this, stay with that pain and sorrow. The wound is the place where the light enters you. What a great line that is. The wound of your life, the brokenness of your life is where the light of God, the power of God can enter in and do something extraordinary. And you believe that. You know, some of us have wounds that we've walked in here with. My hope today is that we realize that through our brokenness, through our imperfections, through our flaws, through our woundedness, through our hurts even, that God can enter in, that the light of God can come in and create something different, create something beautiful. God is the master artist. He's the master restorer. And he's in the business of taking wounds, open wounds, and healing them and putting them into scars, scars that then can be in this, this, this form of remembrance that can lead even to a purpose of your life. In the recovery ministry, we say it this way, that hurt people hurt others or wounded people wound others. You know, if you have an open wound and someone comes up and touches that wound, what do you do? You're like, at least for me, I'm like, I'm gonna, you know, don't touch that. You have a reaction. But if you have a scar, you can touch a scar. And many times healed people heal others. And when our wounds become scars, many times it's a reminder to say, if God can heal us, guess what? We can go out and heal the world. You have, your wounds can become your power. So Kensington has some friends from this place called Win Rider. And they made a video that we just think is extraordinary and beautiful. And it's highlighting one of my favorite Christian artists and Christian leaders. His name is Makoto Fujimara. He's Japanese, he's an incredible artist, an incredible leader. He works at Fuller Seminary now. And so they are actually gonna drop us into a world of something called kintsugi. It's a Japanese art form, but it works so perfectly for our day to day and gives us a real tangible image to hold on to as we're gonna move into the scripture. So let's take this in together. The world is predicated upon 
mending what is broken. And this reality of how the Kintsugi bowl is more valuable than the original uh, really speak to the uh, restorative, redemptive process um, of the gospel. Kintsugi is this art form of mending, uh, broken shards of pottery. Kin means gold and tsugi means to mend, so you are reconnecting the broken pieces, but doing it in a way that is, that is beautiful and uh, it's an art form of its own. Kintsugi speaks about conditions of trauma and brokenness, ground zero conditions valuing what you have rather than this disposable culture. Kintsugi is not just fixing, but it's, it's creating into an opportunity um, of brokenness. And so that is a redemptive journey um, that leads to new creation. え、10年ぐらい前からワークショップをやってたんですけど、あの、やっぱり震災が一度あってね、311の時にその後すごい注文が突然増えたんですよ。だけど結局ちょっと落ち着いた時に、あの、何を直そうかっていうと意外とみん
fixed uh, upon these traumatic events in history. If you removed all of the novels and art forms that <clears throat> came directly out of trauma, you would lose 80% of world's art. Um, you will not have Hemingway, you will not have J.D. Salinger, you will not have Dante, you will not have Milton. The world will be decimated. It's a very significant way of understanding art and literature, um, and uh, more importantly, our communities and us, uh, a way of processing um, the past, finding healing, um, to be able to sow seeds of hope in the midst of conflict. We tend to want to run away from these conflicts and traumas, but it is the very heart of what the arts represents. こうやって金継ぎをずっと続けることによってあの本当に世界の見え方が全部変わってくる感じがすごいするんですよあの完璧に仕上げるよりもちょっと未完成な方がさっきまでボロボロだと思った器に王権の皮が流れてるっていうふ
And that is more valuable than what we started with. Do you believe that your flaws are thrilling? Do you believe that your brokenness is something God can take and make into something new and it can be even more valuable? Some of you walked in today and I don't think you believe that. I'm hoping by the end of this time you do. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this beautiful community. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Much of your work, Lord, that we never will maybe even get to see, but we know that you're always working. And we're working right now in this community individually and corporately. Lord, we wanna understand what it means for your light to enter into our woundedness, for your light to enter into our brokenness. What does it mean for you to mend us in a way that you would send us out even stronger, even better, and even more insightful than when we began? Is it true, Lord, that you can be making us into a new creation that would have even more purpose and more power in the future. Show us that way, Lord. It's your way. It has eternal value and it's everlasting. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to talk about a pretty well-known story in Scripture today. It's about Jesus meeting a particular woman at a particular place in a particular time of day in a particular region. And there's a reason for all of that. And I'm hoping that you will place yourself inside this story that it won't just be another story out of scripture and we'll just kind of listen to it, but you'll actually really take it in because it's amazing what Jesus does. He was a master teacher, a master restorer. He always had vision. He always saw people. And in just seven interactions with this particular woman, her life was transformed. She had an encounter with Jesus and it took her broken things and started to give her a vision for how powerful she could be to the community that she had been ostracized from. And so I want you to really take this in. I want you to really pay attention to it. And I want you to place yourself in the story that we find in the Gospel of John in chapter four. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself, but his disciples who baptized, he left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. In this moment, the religious people of that time are starting to really get pressure about the people that are following Jesus. I think probably the political leaders were doing this as well. Remember, during this culture and this time, it was okay to study different religions. You had a number of different religions. They call that a pluralistic culture. And that was okay. What was not okay is to have an uprising or to have a movement of people that would start to rock the powers to be. And here the religious leaders are worried about that movement. And I'm sure the political leaders are as well. But it said that Jesus, at the end of this, had to go through Samaria. Actually, one of the, the, the few interpretations of this scripture, the way it would actually read, and it's kind of awkward, he says, he must needs go through Samaria. That's how they would actually phrase it. What it was saying is, he needed to go through Samaria. Now, here's what I need you to know in that geographical location. There was no geographical reason that Jesus had to go that way. He, now, it's the fastest way from where he was to Samaria up to Galilee. But most Jewish leaders and most Jewish people would never walk through Samaria. They would actually go another route. It would be longer, but they would, they would avoid Samaria altogether. They would come across, probably cross the Jordan River, come up through Jordan, come across and go into Galilee. Why? Because the Jews and the Samaritans had a fierce hate for each other for a number of different reasons, political and cultural and religious reasons, the Jews viewed the Samaritans as what they would call half-breeds, partly because they were a pluralistic religious culture. They mixed a bunch of different religions into the Jewish religion. So they saw that as kind of a half-breed, but they also intermarried. And so the Jews did not have a lot of affection for the Samaritans and the Samaritans not for the Jews. 
there was a lot of racial tension. There was a lot of prejudice. There was a lot of hate. You know, I've had people in the last couple of years, this is a side note, I didn't even say it first service. I've had a lot of people tell me that there's no racism in the Bible. There's no conflict like that in the Bible. It's a prime example, and there's hundreds of examples of racial tension, of all kinds of things in the Bible that people hated each other and they were prejudiced. Even God's people had hate towards other people. And so Jesus knows this, and he decides that he needs to go through Samaria. Why did he need to? He needed to because I'm convinced that he knew that someone was there that needed to have an experience with Jesus. Just like some of you today. You came into this place, who knows why you're here, but you need to experience the truth about Jesus. You need to hear that your brokenness can become beautiful. You need to hear that you're powerful. You need to hear that your hurts don't have to hold you back. You need to hear that today. And you need to hear that a living God is ready to enter into your life and do something extraordinary. And I'm telling you, I really believe that Jesus was saying, I'm not gonna go a skirt around these issues. I'm gonna go right to the center of it. And so he travels to Samaria. Says this, he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar. Near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired by his journey, was sitting by the well and it was about noon. Here's another moment that I love in scripture. You know, we think about God. Do you ever think about God as being tired? No, we never think about God as a divine God to ever have a moment of humanity. But we really believe that Jesus was fully God, fully human that he lived inside of his humanity. He felt what we felt. And so this is a beautiful moment in scripture where you actually see the humanity of God. It says that Jesus was tired from this journey. It says a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink? Jews did not share things in common with Samaritans. You know, it's, it, this whole little verse is loaded with so much culturally. This was a patriarchal society, heavy patriarchal society. I mean, men had the power. Women did not have the power. Children didn't have power. Men had the power. And so here you have a man, a stranger, coming into a city and a woman there. Now, he was a rabbi. Jesus was a rabbi. In that culture, rabbis weren't even allowed to talk to their own wives or daughters in public, let alone a strange woman. So here you have this rabbi, this Jewish man, this woman, Samaritan, Jews and Samaritan had tension, and all of this is happening in the very noonday sun at the hottest moment. Now, why is that important? It's important because many times in that culture, women would be a communal gathering at the well early in the morning, not in the noonday sun. But now you have this lone woman that's meeting at a time you'd never go to the well. Why is she meeting there? Well, we know during scripture, and we'll find out a little bit later, that she's someone that has been pushed away from society, that her life and her choices that she's made has ostracized her from this society, that she's on the margins, that she's been pushed away, that she's not accepted. And now she can't be in a communal relationship with that particular community. She has to be by herself at a time in the day that you would never be at the well. And here Jesus is strategically showing up in this moment. It's incredible what Jesus is doing here. He's breaking down cultural barriers, racial barriers, societal barriers, gender barriers, religious barriers. All of this is happening in this little bit of scripture. And you know what's amazing? The way that Jesus does that is he asks this stranger, this woman, for a favor. Would you give me a drink? He appeals to her kindness. He says, would you give me? Now, 
if you were at a place and a stranger came up to you and you could tell that they were worn out and they were tired and they said, can I have a drink, what would you do? He said, I'll give you a drink. He appeals to her kindness. And, but she comes at him kind of strong. How could you even think about that? You're a Jew. Why would you ask me for a drink? I'm a woman and I'm your enemy. Jesus says this. If you knew the gift of God, say the gift of God. Say it one more time. The gift of God. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Say living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have no bucket. What is she saying? She's like, you don't even have a bucket for water and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestors, Jacob, our patriarchs, who gave us this well and his sons and his flocks would drink from it? Jesus said to her this, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. Listen to this line. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. Don't miss this line. If you, if you take one line home with you today, listen to this. Jesus says, I offer you something. He's saying that to, to, to this woman years ago and he's saying that to you today. Jesus is saying this. I offer you a water that will, that will give you that will spring up and gush out eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water. <laughs> it's like, yeah, give me that. I want that. So that what? That I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. It's interesting, her reaction. She's still thinking physical water. Now we know that 60% of our body is water. We can go weeks without eating food, but we can only survive days without water. So we know the real importance of physical water. And she's still thinking he's talking about physical water, but he's talking about something so much bigger. He's not talking about the physical water. He's offering something so different and so much more powerful, a gift from God, something you can't earn your way, something you can't take, something you can't actually manufacture. It's a gift. It's something that God, only God can give. Only the source of Christ can give this kind of water, only this source, a gift that will quench the thirst of your life forever. And she says, give me that water, but I want it, so why? So I never have to come back in public to this place. You know what she's saying? She's saying, I've been ostracized from this community. My brokenness has made me invalid. People look at me like I'm flawed. And you know what? Every time I have to remind myself in the noonday sun to come here by myself, I'm reminded of my brokenness. So if you can give me some water so I never have to come here and think about my guilt and shame and my brokenness, that would be great. Because that would be the most amazing restoration I could have right now. And Jesus does something so ingenious as a teacher. <laughs> something so incredible. It seems like he makes a hard left turn in this conversation. He says to her this, Go call your husband and come back. What a weird thing to say. And we're talking about water. I'm talking about giving you a gift. Oh, by the way, just go call your husband first and then come back. And she says this, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right in saying you have no husband. For you've had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman looked at him and said, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Now, why would Jesus do that? Why would he look at her and, and speak into her biggest brokenness? 
Isn't that interesting? She's thinking he's talking about actual physical water and he presses into the deepest parts of her life in that moment. Why? Why would he do that? He wants to shake her up and say, listen, I see who you really are. I see what you're trying to do. I see that you're trying to fill your life with the things of this world. You're trying to fill the longings of your life with men, with relationships, with pleasure, with what all we, we do in this room. Think about it. All of us in this room try to fill life with our work and our careers and our kids and our status and our material wealth and our reputation, you name it. And Jesus is saying, no matter how much success you have, no matter how much fame and fortune and relationships and pleasure, anything you can think of, everything will eventually leave you thirsty, wanting more. But Jesus said, there's something. So he's pointing right to her and she's saying, he goes, I know who you are. I see your brokenness, but there's something more in you. There's something I can offer you different. You're searching in the wrong place. Jesus is offering living water, his living water of grace. It's amazing what happens in this moment because I'm not gonna read this section, but the woman tries to distract him by bringing up politics and religious things and where we're supposed to worship. I'll mention it a little bit later. She tries to distract him. Why? Because she doesn't wanna hear that. (laughs) Don't tell me about my brokenness. I wanna hear that from you. I don't wanna dive deep right now in that. But he's patient. And he waits. It says that his disciples came back and they were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said anything. No one said, what do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? And then it says this, then the woman left her water jar and she went back to the city and she said to all the people, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. He, he cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and they were on their way to see him. Listen, this is amazing actually what's happened. Here's a woman that when they first met Jesus said, here's a man, here's a Jew. I'll call him sir. Maybe he's a prophet. And now what does she say? Could he be the Messiah? Could he be the savior of my soul? Do you know how many times I've seen that in this community? Jesus, that book's just written about men. Men wrote it, doesn't mean anything. There's no power, Jesus didn't think. Just a man, just a sir. Well, Maybe there's something more there because I'm experiencing something. Well, wait, wait a minute. Maybe there is a prophetic thing that's happening in my life. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe I need a savior of my soul. You see this unbelievable transformation of this woman that now somehow leaves her water pot behind and goes out to the community. And it says this, that many Samaritans from that city believed in Jesus because of that woman's testimony. Do you realize that in that culture, a woman's testimony didn't mean anything. Men would never listen to a woman's testimony. But it says in here that they believe because... She had a testimony that Jesus would tell her everything that she had ever done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed for two more days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, but we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is truly the savior of the world. In that small little conversation, in a place that Jesus really didn't have to be, He met a person, and in that conversation and in that encounter, this woman went into a new creation. She's recreated into a person of influence. She's reinstated into her community. She's an outcast that becomes an insider. She's someone rejected that now is accepted. She's someone that's been marginalized, that's been placed in the center. A restoration of racial disparity. Jews and Samaritans communing together. Many Samaritans placing their faith in Jesus Christ. It's an amazing story. And that's happening to this day. When people experience the power of God, the gift of God's powerful grace, 
the gift of God's grace that is transformative. Those are really the two parts of this, that God's grace is a gift. It's nothing we can receive and earn on our own. And God's gift is powerful and transformative. His grace is powerful and transformative. God can take our brokenness and transform it into a new creation. Do you believe that your flaws are thrilling? You know, there's an author by the name of Dave Givens. He wrote a book called Zealots. And years ago, he had a, 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 a kind of a, he talks about your pain becomes your platform. The things are your brokenness are the things that God will actually use to impact the world. And he has this thing called the stages of transformation. And it really does link up to the, the passage that we talked about today. Here's the stages that he writes out. This stage of transformation from pain to platform. Stage one is that we tend to cover up. Did you notice that the woman at the well came in the noonday sun? She covered up. She didn't want anyone to see her brokenness, but she met Jesus there. And by that conversation, there was an explosion. And she actually confessed. At one point, she, she told the truth. And she said, yes, you're right about what you say about me. And she started to embrace that and embrace that pain. And she started to surrender and acknowledge that to God, stage three. And then it turned into a sense of trust, this idea that, okay, maybe this is true of God. And if it is, this pain can definitely take me on a guided tour. And that moment where she dropped her jar was that moment. I'm gonna drop my jar, the jar I need for life, physical water. I'm gonna leave it here and I'm gonna walk a mile to the city and I'm gonna stand in front of a community that has ostracized me and I'm going to tell them the truth. Not only about me, but I'm gonna tell them about Jesus. And in that moment, this is the last stage, it's a celebration. A moment where your pain becomes your platform. It becomes your guide. Your broken things actually get pushed out and you actually proclaim something that has profound impact on a community. St. Augustine says it this way. He says, in my deepest wound, I see your glory and it dazzles me. Our pain becomes scars for people to see the healing power of a great God. Our pain becomes our badge of credibility. Our pain can be a gift that gives us authority. Our pain can be a connection to humanity. Our pain can become our purpose and our pain prepares us for a new creation, for a resurrection in our life. Flaws can be thrilling. Do you believe it? Brokenness can be beautiful. The wound is the place where the light enters you. Christ didn't come just to fix us, but to restore us into something that is new and that is more valuable than what we started with. The Apostle Paul says it this way, anyone who is in Christ becomes a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And so we wanted to tell you a story. In fact, we're going to have Taylor come out in a minute and tell this story. I was in a director's meeting at our Troy campus. And uh, Taylor came in and she, she shared with us a story. Um, and man, it was so moving and linked so well to this day that I asked her at the end, would you be willing to come and share that story? And so she's going to share what we call a red chair story. I'll explain that in a minute. But before we do that, we're going to receive our offering. So if you've come prepared to take part in this moment, thank you so much. If you're online, of course, you know that there's a number of different ways that we give and we can give in here as well. We don't pass the pouch during this time, of course, but we do have text. You can text Kensington, uh, the word Kensington to that number, 77977. You can use our app. You can go online to our website. You can also write a check. And then when you leave here, there's boxes here. But I just want to tell you, this moment for us as a community is the moment that we say we want to invest in this kind of a movement. 
You know, we want to be part of a restoration movement around here and around the world rooted in Jesus. And so part of that is investing our resources at us in an act of worship. So thank you for your generosity. Uh, well, so I really do want you to take this story and would you welcome Taylor Leal to the stage, please. Hello, my name is Taylor. My husband's name is Joe and we have two children. Jax, who is four, and Blake, who is one. Pretty early on, Joe and I noticed Jax wasn't hitting milestones. Since we were new to this parenting gig, we weren't sure what to expect and honestly never thought too much of it when Jackson was slow to roll over, slow to crawl, slow to walk, and not talking. We knew and understood that all children developed at different paces and believed everything was going to be okay. That was until we met a specialist, and another one, and another one, and another one. It took four years to learn Jackson had autism. And the journey of this diagnosis has led me to a constant state of surrender. And I'm sure for parents in the room, or really anyone who is following Jesus, a consistent act of surrender is pretty normal. When Jackson couldn't walk at 18 months, I surrendered his ability to walk to Jesus. When Jackson wasn't babbling or saying any words by two years old, I surrendered it to Jesus. Before Jackson received a diagnosis, I went to a lot of different specialists and read a lot of mommy blogs, but I still surrendered it to Jesus. When Jackson started going to speech therapy, I really feel like I gave that to God. When Jax was officially given an autism diagnosis, I surrendered it to Jesus. When doctors told me there was a strong chance that Jackson would never talk, although I still prayed that he would, I surrendered that to Jesus. I surrendered the next step in his journey to God. I surrendered the community that I would have because of his diagnosis. I surrendered the burden of finances and con that were connected to his rigorous therapy. I feel like I surrendered it all to God. But for the longest time, even while I was in prayer and surrendering these things to God, there still lied a really real tension. It was between handing it over to Jesus and still working really hard to make it better. I gave this to Jesus, but I would still wake up the next morning consumed by it and worked hard to make it better, to try to fix it to fix the autism, I would put him in really intense behavioral therapy. To fix his speech, I would advocate for some device and put him in speech therapy. To keep the community that I had, I would fix the way that they felt about my son's diagnosis. To fix, to fix, to fix. And although working towards those goals were good and I feel like they could be help, healthy, like therapy, right? Therapy is good. A device that could be helpful. Well, my community, they're, they're loving and they're understanding. I knew I was allowed to do and feel all of those things. But at the end of the day, surrendering had to mean that regardless of what I did to help Jackson within my humanness, I still had to trust God that regardless of the outcome, I couldn't have this bad feeling in my belly because I knew that God was still good. Sometimes I think we have a tendency to try and fix things when maybe that very thing was part of what Jesus wanted to use for something more. 
it took a pretty large perspective shift for me to truly see these parts that seemed broken beyond repair as parts that were actually some of the most beautiful things about this boy. These broken things would allow others to find hope in Jesus. These things would challenge our skeptic friends to pray. These things would teach me resilience and tenacity and hope. These broken pieces would teach other children that this kind of disability is a challenging one. And it would also teach them about grace and about understanding. It would challenge our community to have patience, to listen, to be slow to speak. My faith has been challenged over the past four years. There is no doubt about that. But I have never felt more close to God than I am right now. Recently, I sat in this tension and the moment that I made the choice to not fix the situation anymore and not try to manipulate the outcome, this is what happened. What are you gonna tell? Your turn. Stop. Stop recording you? Turn. You <laughs> Tell me how you're feeling. Happy. You're happy? Yay. Trick or treat, trick or treat, oh, trick nice. or treat. Right here. Say thank you. How do you say thank you? Oh, oh good yeah. job. <laughs> <laughs> Jackson, for the first time, was able to tell me how he was feeling. I am happy, he said. And for the first time, he could go trick-or-treating and say trick-or-treat. How empowering it must have felt for him to have a voice. Everything in me wanted to pass up the opportunity to get Jackson a device to help him talk. Everything in me wants to believe that this little boy is going to speak with his tongue one day. I thought to myself, if I make the choice to advocate for this device, then surely I was giving up hope for Jax. I felt like I was admitting that he could never talk. But when I was able to get to a place of surrender, when I truly placed that in the hands of Jesus, I accepted the next piece of Jackson's story. Jesus allowed me to revel in the joy and the success that that device would have in this season of Jackson's life. And very quickly, actually, because that initial video was 24 hours after he received the device. I believe God will use Jackson's voice, even if it's with a device. This is, part, <laughs> this is the part of our walk where I have to trust Jesus. Because he knows what's wrong, and ultimately, he is pointing me to the right people to give me the services that I need to help Jackson. This has been the biggest faith journey of my life. But this little boy is proof that he can make something that feels so broken really beautiful. As we sat in the room and listened to a version of that a couple of weeks ago, I was just so moved by that and just so moved by how God moves within things that we think are over or broken or not going to be as we imagine. And he brings people around in community and he starts to really 
make what seems broken into something that's even more powerful. So we thought the best way to end our time together is to take communion. Communion really is this beautiful picture of God saying, guess what? I am actually gonna come and I'm gonna offer all of my broken, meaning I'm gonna have my body broken for all people. I'm going to actually come and live a life and give my life on the cross as a final sacrifice and overcome even death. And so in this moment, as the ushers are gonna pass out communion, we're gonna sing a song over you called New Creation. And what we're hoping will happen in this moment is that you can hold on to that communion. We'll take it together in a minute. But I really want you to start to think through, Lord, what is it? What parts of me have I not let you in? What parts of me am I not surrendering to you? What parts of me have I haven't handed over? What parts that are broken in me that I try to hide and cover that I need to embrace and surrender and trust in you so that there'll be a moment of celebration uh, in, in our lives. And so uh, as we listen to this song, take this song in, pray during this time, talk to God, and then we'll take communion together. Thank 
of Jesus' life where he had the last meal with his disciples, he really wanted to give them a ritual, something that they would remember the very truth of the idea that in just a little time, just a little while, Jesus is going to give up his life. They had no idea what was actually going to happen. Not then. We know now. But he wanted them to have this moment that we're having right now, thousands of years later, to be able to be reminded that Jesus was gonna give himself up on a cross as a final sacrifice, take all the brokenness and all the sin and all of the stuff that we have in our lives on himself and overcome even death three days later so that those that would put their faith in Jesus would have a way to restoration. And so he wanted that moment for his closest disciples to say, don't forget this. And so he said, here, this is bread that's gonna signify my body that I'm gonna give up for all people, for every person, for every ethnicity, for every culture, for every race, for every man, for every woman and child. And so as we take this, I want you to think about what you prayed about during that song. Lord, what is it that I need to surrender to you and know that Jesus in his finished work on the cross is taking care of that. Let's take this together. With the juice, it represents Jesus' blood. It says in scripture that Jesus' blood washes us clean. It's just pouring out. In fact, when we tell the red chair story, it's red for a reason because it's red for redemption, that Jesus' life comes and washes us clean, that he would spill out all of his blood to wash us clean. And so when Taylor sits there, she's telling a story. It may not have the perfect ending. It may have a perfect ending. We don't know, but we just know we're on a journey with Jesus. And Jesus says, I want you to remember that every day you can come to me and I'll wash you white as snow. You can surrender your life to me and I will take you down a different path. So as you take this, do it in that spirit. Lord, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for this season as we are preparing our hearts and our community for Christmas this moment where you decide to come close to your creation and so that your creation would have a way into new creation. We thank you, Lord, for how you think about your creation, how you love us, how that you would go through all extremes to love your community. And we give this moment and all of this to you and we say, amen. Well, we're gonna end with one song. So we invite you, if you're willing and able, uh, to stand and to sing this out and fill the room. to fulfill the law and promise to 
Michelle is such a gift, man. Woo. Um, you know, I, I touched her shoulder and I walked the other way and she thought the Holy Spirit just touched her. She, she was, I, I totally threw her off. I apologize for that, but, uh, but the Holy Spirit is definitely there for sure. Um, hey, when you, leave, when, you leave today, when you leave today, there is a card that you'll receive. It's, uh, it's our care, what we call our care initiatives. When we start talking about brokenness and broken things and some of those things that you might have meditated and thought about and prayed about to God today, sometimes that can bring in a lot. And we have a lot of great places that you can go to process this stuff with our community. So grab this, look it over, pray over it. Remember baptism, Thanksgiving baptism this coming week. Hey, I'm so grateful. Next week, Andrew's gonna end this series. So we invite you to come back to talk more about the new creation, but have a great week. Thank you for being here. You've been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.